Welcome to Revere Asset Management's Your Money with Danny Stewart. The market will always overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And Don Vandenborg. Because it's not how much you make in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep. Did the big bad Fed just threaten Goldilocks and your retirement? Did the Fed threaten grandma's assisted living house and blow it down? Oh, sorry, that's the wrong wolf. Uh, anyway, why is QRA so damn important? And why does everybody pay attention to it all of a sudden this last week? We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Hint, it's about the cost of money. It's always about the cost of money and the financing. And guess what? There's a bill to repeal the income tax, the tax on Social Security that I thought was going broke in seven years. Once again, they're lying to you, those bastards. They're lying to you because they keep saying the only two options are cutting taxes, I mean, raising taxes, or cut, cut benefits on Social Security in isolation. They're only talking about Social Security. Folks, LBJ commingled it in the general fund years ago. It's not its own little trust fund. So we could talk about spending on everything, the whole, the whole general fund. We can cut other things to be able to show up Social Security. They don't want to talk about that. There's also a new bill to, to uh, uh, repeal the estate tax. Again, that's smoke and mirrors, folks. The uber-rich do not pay estate tax. And neither should you, even if you're upper middle class. If you got a problem with that, come see me. We can solve it. It is solvable. There's ways not to pay the estate tax. You just got to jump through a few hoops and do a few things differently. But there's also a bill for accelerated depreciation, 100%, and all kinds of stimulus things that Congress is trying to pull out. Why? Because I think they see the economy slowing and they're kind of getting worried that if it slows too much heading into the recession, or I'm sorry, the election, Freudian slip, if we head into the election in a recession, that looks bad for all the incumbents on both sides. They don't like that. So they're going to grease the wheels. It is an election year. So we'll talk about that also. And alas, the annuity letter. Oh, yes, the annuity letter that I had to write to get money from what is the traditional advisor brotherhood. You'll, I think you'll really enjoy that. But first, I'm going to the chapel and my daughter's going to get married. Oh, yeah. Going to the chapel with my checkbook in hand. <laughs> so anyway, she, she made an announcement. Well, I knew about it last week and I couldn't do it on the show because they were her and her fiance were, uh, he already asked her hand and did all the stuff. They Aww. were actually up skiing in Crested Butte, Colorado, and he was going to announce it. And I didn't know if he had announced it yet or not. And she watches this podcast sometimes, not always, but occasionally. And I was worried that if I mentioned it on the show and he had proposed to her yet, Aww. I would have blown it. So I had to wait till this week. And my daughter, my youngest daughter, made the dean's list at Baylor, which is why hey. I'm wearing this shirt. Now, now, the, the daughter getting married, the older daughter getting married is probably on the longer term, a little bit bigger of, a, of an announcement, although the dean's list is important. And I would have worn my tux. Mm. But right now we're doing a, 
some house repairs and issues and remodeled, whatever. And so a lot of my stuff is in storage, including my tux. So I did not have a tux to wear to celebrate my daughter's wedding. So Lexi, I'm sorry. Aww. You'll have to just accept the ba Baylor Guayavera. <laughs> anyway. All right. Let's Anne? get right. Yes. Anne? Yes. Anne? Yes. Wasn't there, wasn't there another celebration in the Stewart household this week? How no. old are you? Oh, God, I'm 53. Yeah, you're not 53. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going in women's years. Right. I'm going, well, yeah, if I was okay. women's yeah, years, right. I'd be 39. Right. <laughs> they hate that. Happy, whatever happy birthday, Dan. Well, thank hey, you. That was January 3rd. What's so funny is women, for some reason, that 40 is like a huge, huge thing, and they like hitting 39, 39, 39. I just think that's kind of funny. Anyway, uh, I would just thought it was funny that all women seem to find that 40 is like the, the big the big one. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, so— And even we, though it's your birthday, I'm not going to let you get away with saying that the trust fund, that the Social Security trust fund is commingled with the rest of the budget. It's a separate trust fund with a separate balance— that loans money to the general budget budget to spend, and the trust okay. fund is solvent through 2041. Which uh, actually, means the seven years. They, they know they've, re, they've they've redone the numbers. It runs out of money in seven years. They're out of money in seven years. Okay, they've but redone it the, and that's what that's balance, and that, separate account. Okay, and here's it, what and I, it does have a surplus right now. It's so okay, okay, Don, Don, hang on, up. hang on, along those logic. You're saying that they lend money. The Social Security Fund lends money to the other side because they need money, right? Yes. If you cut funds yes. on the other side, you would have to lend less money. So, yes, it's a separate account. It's like having a joint account with my wife, and I've got five different bank accounts, one at Chase, one at Frost, and they have separate bank accounts. But it's all one big fund, and I can borrow and, and you know borrow money and pay this from here. It doesn't matter. It's all it's part of the general fund technically, though, and so they could cut other parts of the general fund that would help Social Security. So all I'm saying is they're being dis. They don't want to talk about other cuts. They only want to talk about Social Security in isolation, because if they do that, then it's only raising taxes on those mean rich people who already pay 90% of the taxes, or we cut benefit. They were trying to scare people. They're trying to scare you, and they always do that. I mean, look, Don, we should have roads paved for gold. They bring in hundreds of billions of dollars every year in the gasoline tax, which was supposed to be earmarked for the roads. That's gone. And so now they want a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill to build, repair the roads that should have already been repaired. So... I don't know. I just think they're lying bastards on both sides. By the way, I, I'm not. I'm not a like. I'm not prejudiced against one or the other. They're all full of it. Anyway, I digress. Uh, well, let's talk about the the markets more because I'm sure people don't want to hear Don and I debate about uh, the Fed and their evil ways. Uh, Don likes the Fed. I don't. Well, he likes them more than I do. Um, but I, I I dislike the spending of the government. Well, that's true. That's even worse. That. That, that's uh, fair enough. You, I, I'll tip my hat on that. You're fair enough. All right. Now, the, the one reason I was talking about the cuts on Social Security is the fact that, that well, they're talking about this article, and I put all these articles in the show notes, is that they're talking about cutting the tax on Social Security it doesn't really raise that much, but if you make enough money, if you have other income coming in and your Social Security benefits are high, like you've maxed out, you have the higher benefit because you put in more, 
you actually paid more into the system, so therefore you should get more out. They started taxing it. So it's really the only upper income earners in Social Security with other forms of income that get taxed on their Social Security. So not everyone gets taxed on Social Security. It's only the people that are better off anyway. So it's already very progressive. But they're talking about removing that tax and then adding the, you know, the 15.3, the seven and a half you pay uh, as an employee, the withholding that they withhold off your taxes, you pay that that amount all the way up to, I can't remember, it's a couple hundred thousand, hundred and eight, whatever it is, up to a certain number. And then that drops off and you only pay the 2.9 Medicaid. So you only uh, pay up that seven and a half. And if you're self-employed, it's 15.3. You're paying both sides. So like at Revere, I'd be paying both sides. Above that certain amount, you're going to pay that whole amount. Here's the problem. That upper amount, once you earn over 150 or 160, whatever that is, over that amount, the people that are upper that are making money, that are doing well and have disposable income, those are the people that create the jobs, that start the businesses. That's their disposable income to help the economy, to spend, to create jobs if they have extra money. If you start taking another 15% off the top for these business owners, over and above the 150, you're going to dampen job creation and growth. Anyway, that's my thoughts. I think there's other ways uh, to shore it up. But basically what they want to do is they want to take the Social Security tax off the Social Security portion, but then people that have earned income, they're making it from passive to earned, they're going to tax that infinitum. That's because they'll bring in a lot more money. That's why they're doing it. Anyway, so that's that one. Um, and then the bonus depreciation and the estate tax, all that stuff you can read in the show notes. I don't want to dive too deep. But if you do have a business, you do have some depreciation things that you can do. All right. Let's talk about the annuity letter first, because the other things are talking about the markets and they'll dovetail with uh, uh, the uh, mailbag. Now, so I have a client who has been with us for a little while and he's gotten used to what we do and he understands it, but he also had an annuity somewhere else that he did a couple years ago with a big 10% surrender penalty or eight or, you know, it goes 10, nine, eight, you know, it slowly goes away over uh, 10 or 12 years. It was a very long surrender penalty with very high commission. And the, the, reg, the regulators, the DOL kind of make you, d d or, or the insurance agent make you justify why it's acceptable to take it out. What's the alternative? What is the better solution? Because they really want to, look, the lobbyists help them to write the bills. So you got to justify why you want to take it out. So in tongue in cheek, now I rewrote this letter and watered it down a little bit when I sent it because we were really just trying to get them to surrender the annuity. So this is the client's money. This is your money that we named the show, not their money. See, the traditional advisor brotherhood, they think it's their money and you get to use it. Okay. Now, uh, so this is to so-and-so life insurance company regarding policy to whom it may concern. So-and-so has been following our firm for years, and he's been a client for over four years. He understands our strategies well and likes our fiduciary approach, which is free of large commission products and surrender penalties with high ongoing fees. I didn't single them out, but that's their product. 
Uh, he came to us regarding this because he was thoroughly dissatisfied with your annuity, and it was very difficult to get answers or customer support. Again, we did not solicit him on this annuity in any way, and he came to us and is intent on doing something different, whatever that may be. In other words, he's surrendering the annuity whether he comes to us or not. I have to justify Revere saying that it's a good idea. Okay, I advised him about your hefty double-digit surrender penalty. Folks, don't ever do anything with this double-digit surrender penalty. Run. Speaking of surrender penalties, can you please how advise how a double-digit... This is where I got a little tongue-in-cheek. Speaking of surrender penalties, can you please advise how double-digit surrender penalties is in the best interest of the client, especially when there are indexed annuity products without commissions or surrender penalties? And there were plenty of them at the time he did this a few years ago. Did American Life, excuse me, did this company do a side-by-side -side comparison with Fred against similar products without surrender penalties or fees? You're asking me to do it. Did you do it? Just ask it. The client understands and is perfectly fine paying the surrender penalty. He believes over time this decision will be his best option and saving the ongoing fees within the annuity surrender period. Uh, will help recoup much of those surrender fees over time. He believes his performance will be enhanced. We are not doing a like-kind exchange because we are not putting annuities into an already tax-free vehicle such as a Roth. Uh, the tax deferral is moot, so I hope this, I assume this wasn't a selling point. Folks, one of the biggest selling points for annuities, oh, it's tax-deferred and it's bulletproof and creditor. So is an IRA. And so is a Roth. It already is. Why do they put all these annuities in Roths and IRAs? Simple. That's where the money is. So if you come to them and 90% of your money's in, in an IRA, well, by gosh, then you need some of your money, your IRA in annuity. Anyway, while there is no return guarantees ever, including with your products, so-and-so has made some assumptions. He has reviewed and knows what we have done and what you have done. We are an active manager with a strong sell discipline and manage drawdown significantly. We have never incurred a bear market in our portfolios while the market has had three. Your, uh, while your product doesn't incur losses, it also caps the gain significantly due to your index crediting method. So your returns are almost always lower than the illustration originally provided, the 8% maximum allowed. Folks, if you're being shown an illustration from an annuity company with an 8%, which is always what they show and never what they'll get, it'll be because that's the maximum they allowed. Uh, he is so-and-so is requesting surrender of his annuity and roll it directly in his Roth with Revere Advisor and Charles Schwab, who's simply the custodian. We are a fee-only advisor who is a fiduciary and therefore have a higher standard, a fiduciary standard than best interest. They make us justify this under best interest, but have met the best interest standards anyway, in my opinion. If you like this justice further, call me. Folks, let me explain to you what best interest is. Best interest means suitability in its current form. They're trying to change that. It means if it's suitable. So if it's suitable for you to have a very aggressive go-go tech fund, they can sell you a 5% a, a upfront loaded mutual fund, even though that same mutual fund has an institutional class. I, we don't use mutual funds, but if I was going to do that, I would get you that institutional class that's got maybe 20 or 30 basis points alone with no surrender fee, no transaction fee. So every mutual fund has five or six different 
versions of their fund, depending on whether a broker selling it or a fund um, uh, advisor like us, it's fee only. Again, we don't use mutual funds. Point being is, as long as it's suitable for you to have this technology fund because you're aggressive, why is, it, why is it in your best interest to pay a 5% loaded fee so you start off down 5% versus just starting out at the whole at 100, 100 cents on the dollar with no surrender penalty and you, don't, you can sell it right away? The answer is not. It's not. A, they dressed it up like it's like the Inflation Reduction Act. The only thing that does is cause inflation. It's a lot of spending. So anytime you see a bill or something put out, normally it does the opposite. Here, best interest means best interest in the, of the broker. Now, they're trying to change that, and they're trying to force these brokers to go toward the fiduciary model. And so they're trying to make best interest fiduciary, and you just can't do it. It's, you can't do it if you're selling commission products. That's my opinion. Anyway, all right. Now, along those lines, I got another guy that sent us the same kind of deal he sent me a whole annuity product that he's trying to analyze and look at. And so here are the sharing ratios. These are an indexed annuity. And these are the cap rates. So I want you to understand because they make them very complicated. Because all their interest crediting, it's based on the S&P, but they promise you the index return based on a credited method with either averaging or caps or participation rate. So if they cap it, that means it's a cap at 8 or 10% or 12, whatever the cap is. It means you can't get higher than that. So if the S&P has a big year like last year and it's up 20, you only get 10 minus the mortality and expenses minus your, well, so you get 10 on that because you got enough. Cap is at 10. If the, if the, if the S&P made 10, you'd only get 10, but you still got to take out your M&E expenses. It didn't get covered. So now you're a little bit less. You're about 8 or 8.5, eight Okay. If, you, if, if the market goes down that year, you make nothing. And in a year that market makes like seven, you'll make a little less because it's minus the S&P, right? So you get 100% participation up to the cap, then it caps you. So when you average those years, one, couple, one or two years at zero, one year at seven or six or five, and then a couple are capped to 10, you always average about six or five or four, actually about four. They're mathematically made to pay you about four, four and a half. They never tell you that. Now... So you can have, so this one says point to point with no cap. So there's no cap. What's the catch? 40% participation rate. So if the market's up 10, you get four, right? If the market's up, you, you get what I'm saying? You're only getting 40% of it. So if the market's up 20, you get eight, okay? Then the ones with the, uh, 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 so the bottom line is you either get a participation rate, a sharing ratio, or you get a cap. And then they even have monthly averaging where you take the returns or daily, but monthly, the 12. And they aver all those averaging methods are meant to average the return and cut it in half. That's why you've got to understand it. I'm not saying they're all a bad deal. You've just got to understand what they are. But I will say this. With these annuities, there are a whole plethora of no load, no penalty free, no commission, no surrender penalty annuities out there that compete with these surrender penalty annuities, these big high commission ones. So why would you think about doing a commission annuity with surrender penalties going forward? All right, I've said enough. I've said enough about that now. 
Um, I did want to talk about this, uh, the, the mail ba- the, the Goldilocks thing real quick. The reason I got that is it's my man crush, uh, Jeff Goonlock. He came out and said the Fed basically uh, called the Goldilocks scenario of the, of the soft landing in question because he's going to keep interest rates where they are. And basically he's saying investors now, it's going to put pressure on equities. Of course, the market didn't blink, blink for one day and now it's looking strong. He said you should buy treasury bonds. Now, this is a bond guy. So he's saying you should buy treasuries even over corporate bonds. We're going to talk about that a little bit later because right now you should own treasury, short-term treasury bills. The, the, the yield curve's still inverted. But that's going to change pretty quickly, I think, when rates do come down. So we'll get back to that when we go to the markets. But now I want to go to the mailbag. And I think I want to to um, go with this one first. All right. So um, this is on 128 uh, from CK. Good afternoon. Wanted to say another exceptional show. Constant. I love the constant reinforcement, your discipline trading uh, principles, especially like Connor's analysis of XLE, three stocks doing well sector, enjoyed Ted stage analysis. Um, wish I had known what they did at such a young age. Wanted to ask you about PATH, ticker P-A-T-H, and what you guys think about the stock potential. IBD composite of 99. Sometimes it's already had a big run after that, but uh, first, uh, and it's first in its group. With the pullback to the 50 SMA, and she did send in a chart, uh, pullback to the SMA, uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see if it holds. On a weekly basis, it looks like a stage one base. Guess this is a breaker, make or break moment. Uh, hi, uh, thanks for the compliments. Uh, oh, this is, um, I think this was Ted. This is Ted actually answering. She emailed all of us. Thanks for the compliments. Really glad you enjoyed it. With regard to PATH, one, like you said, is a one stage base. Gap up on earnings on 1130 above the weekly peaks. Officially entered stage two uptrend. Number two, since 1229 reversal, it has been lagging. The S&P confirmed by your blue RS line, making lower highs and lower lows. So it changed character. Number three, here's a tip. I highly recommend you plotting the 21 uh, simple moving average for your RS line. We found breakouts above and below are key indications whether the stock's going to lead or lag. Number four. I'm still very much interested in the name, but would like to see signs it wants to get in gear and outperform the S&P first with the RS line crossing above the 21 SMA. So here he's getting, now he's given the positive and negatives. Boy, Ted, you're pretty dang thorough on this. Positive signs. Number one, 99 composite. As you said, it's a leading group in the AI theme. Number two, sell-off starting on 1229 was below average volume. Good sign. On a weekly chart, we saw the breakout retest with an undercut and reversal uh, of the 50-day simple moving average and oops reversal on the weekly chart. Um, um, and, oh, here it is. That's why it's on the other side. Negative signs. Uh, it had lagged since 1229. Uh, another neat tool is the anchored VWAP. It isn't available on MarketSmith, but is available on other ch- chart charting platforms like TradingView or DeepView. If you were to anchor it to the gap up day, we actually rejected it almost to the penny on 1222 to 1224. I'd like to see us break above the in, uh, above 
that indicating on the average, uh, on average, people are at profit since the gap day. It has about a 13 billion market cap by classical definition is large cap. However, trades more like a mid cap still actually can take advantage of that. If rates in the dollar can retest and MDY and IWM, small and mid cap, push out to its flag, I would expect path type names to get into gear. Uh, CK, wow, that was fast. Thanks for the end up response. All right. So with that, I will let Don, you want to, you guys want to discuss that real quick and we'll go back to one more mailbag. On yeah, it, it's, it, it just uh, is lagging on a relative basis. Um, plain and simple after the sell off on Wednesday with a little panic on the fed <clears throat> leading stocks have bounced back and made new highs. And this one has really made no effort uh, to rally. It's just uh, it's just another name at this point, forming a base. Um, not it was something that we had been in and was showing real leadership, making a higher high a couple of weeks after its big earnings gap. But uh, as Ted kind of indicated, that gap down in late December kind of was a nail in the coffin, and then further weakness the first week in January, and um, really hasn't made much progress since then. Rails lagging. Okay, so essentially it was leading, and now after this pullback, it's not leading with the other leaders. So it, it's Correct. it's got it's got to resume. Okay, all right. This is yep. the next nail bag. This is on two one. Uh, JP, uh, good morning, Dan. Love your uh, love working. Uh, I love the work you and everyone at Revere are doing. Your longer weekly show is the highlight of each week. Uh, two questions: First, has Revere team ever looked at SPYG? Heard you mentioned on a show. It appears to be more concentrated in S and P growth, uh, and it seems to be more O'Neill style growth without the mature companies paying dividends, and have. Um, um, and uh, let's see, I like your thoughts. Price seems attractive for smaller accounts. Other thing on my small mind is, is the Bitcoin miners, potentially high growth field. Uh, although not many are making profits, I'd love to see some of the guys do a deep dive research the Utes do on other industries into this topic, the young guys. Uh, me, I have copied Don uh, in, in case he would like to chime in too. We have used SPG, SPYG in the past uh, when we were looking for S&P exposure with a slant toward growth. Uh, the SPYG is the growth names in the S&P, and then SPYV invest in the value stocks in the S&P, the mature dividend stocks. So they kind of break them up, okay? Both are simply an investing tool uh, for a particular strategy when the timing is right. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons using growth or value slant. Uh, that said, you still need a sell discipline to protect against a major market meltdown. Price per share is normally irrelevant because you simply, he's talking about uh, the smaller accounts now, uh, because you simply buy fewer shares at a higher price or, uh, or more shares at a lower price. So the percentage relative to the portfolio value is the same. So you can manage risk with position sizing. And you do not need round lots. He's an older guy, I know who he is. So you do not need round lots like you used to anymore. You don't need to buy 50 or 100 shares, okay? Thus, on a $50,000 account, if you're trying to buy 5% of the portfolio or $2,500, uh, only once it gets over $500 a share do you start having rounding problems, okay? Rounding up or down. So you can't get right at that 5%. It'd be, you'll get either more or less, you know, you can't get, it's 5.6 or 
you know, 3.8, it's, you're, you're, you're off. Okay. That said, you are correct with dealing with very high price stocks, six, $800 or especially over a thousand, uh, with rounding errors for smalling, uh, accounts that, and I, and I said, we actually vary our position. We at Revere actually vary our position sizing based on the stock's specific characteristics. So each stock has its own unique stop loss. We don't just say 5% across the board. Okay, and each stock has its specific stop loss based on its own ATR and beta. Okay, then moving on. That's why account account size drives the strategies you can implement due to risk management controls. So one solution for a smaller account is to look for a similar surrogate stock with a lower price per share, but very high correlation. If it's a really small account, you may have to use sector ETFs if you can find one that's suitably core, that's highly correlated to your stock. Switching gears now. Regarding Bitcoin ETFs, they are fast. They move fast based on price of spot Bitcoin, and we rely on the technicals to a greater degree. Bitcoin is still as an infancy, uh, and there are a lot of players all vying for the top few spots, so it's still a little murky in my opinion. But I will have the Utes look at it, time permitting. Thanks for listening, and tell, tell your friends about us. Thanks. And then Don chimed in and said, SPYG outperforms the SP, SP500, but not SSO. We prefer SSO leverage. Yes, we are watching Bitcoin miners, but the group is very volatile. Uh, thanks for reaching out. So anyway, um, with that, I will go back to... Now, one reason Don likes the SSO, it takes half the, half the amount, then you leave half your cash available for T-bills or some other stock. So it's actually a, a strategy implementation, mechanical, the reason that Don likes SSO better. All right, with that, Don, I want to go to the markets and let you talk about uh, what you're seeing in the markets because the Fed... Actually, everybody was assuming the Fed was going to be a little bit dovish and go in there and, 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 and say, you know what, the inflation's working. I mean, the interest rates are working, inflation's coming down, and I think we can, we can ease off a little bit, and, 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 or at least, I mean, they weren't going to lower rates yet, but we'll pause and maybe we'll start. Well, he came out and said, we're going to have to keep where they are. We're going to stand pat and monitor, but right now we're going to push out rates dropping for a little bit further out in the year, and the market had a big sell-off two days ago. Big sell-off, down big, across the board. Then yesterday, you had a big bounce, basically recouped almost all those gains. And today, last I checked, we were doing good. Or we came in for the show. So the market just blinked for a day, and now it seems like it's shrugging it off. So with that, setting the table, Don, you tell us what the market is actually telling us, not what I think. Yeah, opinions really don't mean anything. Before we get into that, uh... I'm showing a comparison chart of uh, back to the mailbag, the SPYG growth versus the S&P 500 versus SSO versus the S&P 500 value. This is over a year. Uh, as I said, the SPYG outperforms the S&P 500 because of the heavy weightings in those big uh, growth names up at the top of the index. And the SPY value is uh, lagging uh, badly. But uh, as I mentioned, we do prefer the SSO using half the capital to get the same gain basically as the S&P 500. This is a one-year chart. If you look at a three-year chart, uh, during the bear market, the SPYG lagged badly. SSO did as well, 
uh, but we hedge or get out of the way when we're in bear markets. And this three-year comparison shows uh, SSO coming out on top and SPYG actually trailing the S&P 500 and trailing the value portion because of how value outperformed during the bear, uh, the bear market and then went back to lagging during the bull market. So got to consider multiple timeframes uh, when you're doing your um, decision-making, uh, but we wouldn't be in any of those when we're in a downtrend because we go to the safety of cash in a downtrend. So back can, can, to can the I, market. Can I, can, can I ask you one question? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You guys actually monitor those two ETFs, the growth and value uh S&P um, ETFs against each other to kind of tell where the slant is going. Like when you just put up those charts a second ago, you were showing that the value was way underperforming the growth because right now the growth names of technology is the area to be in. Right now it's the NASDAQ stocks, not the manufacturing or utility, you know, not the other stocks. And so it actually helps you determine so you don't necessarily use those ETFs as an investment vehicle a lot, hardly ever, but you use them kind of to help as an indicator and kind of follow where the money flows are going. 100%. In fact, okay. they're, they're two of the tickers that are right at the top of my uh, massive quote screen. And today, the S&P 500 as of right now, which is 12.17 p.m. Eastern time, the S&P 500 on the day is up 0.92%. The S&P growth is up 1.9%. The S&P value is down 0.42%. And this is because of the big uh, earnings blowouts of uh, Meta up 20% on the day and Amazon up 8% uh, on the day. Those obviously being growth stocks are uh, goosing the return on the S&P 500 growth side. But uh, back to what you were uh, saying, Dan, and this is why you gotta listen to our videos every night uh, you know, they're, I've been shortening them. They're usually less than 15 minutes now to just get in the most important points. And this is two o'clock. Uh, actually, that's closer to three o'clock on Wednesday during the FOMC press conference when Jay Powell said, I don't uh, see any possibility that we would be cutting rates in March. And the market uh, had been acting bullishly on what he was saying and then took a huge drop into the close. Uh, the market took time to digest things overnight, had a mild gap up. We're giving up some of that, uh, started to come back. And then Atlanta Fed GDP came out bullishly, 4.2% forecast for the quarter right now versus 3%. And the markets have been rallying uh, ever since. We're looking at a huge gap up overnight around here. And then pre-market today on Friday, the jobs report came out and added a lot more jobs than was expected. If you want Powell to cut interest rates, you don't want the job market to be strong because it's inflationary. Uh, so the market opened just barely higher, but you can see the reaction today has been a trend up day. So the market is treating Jay Powell like a paper tiger right now, as far as the cutting of the interest rates and how the impact on that in the market. And we made all time highs today, plain and simple. Um, we don't argue with price, we have opinions, we gather information, but ultimately uh, those opinions go into a thesis, but if the thesis does not coincide with what the price action is doing, we defer to what the market is telling us instead of arguing like idiots when the information is right there in our face telling us 
what we should be doing. And that's what we've been doing, riding this wave all the way going back to this perfect follow through day. Uh, it's, it's really the hallmark of when we get bullish. We had a follow through day back to back actually on November 1st and November 2nd. Uh, and the market didn't about face since then and has been riding an extremely strong wave. And we've just been riding this wave over the last three months. Uh, it hasn't been perfect. There've been a couple of pullbacks along the way as there normally are. But what you're seeing is the market holding above this critical 21 day moving green line on here. And we pay a lot of attention to that. That's our short term indicator. We pulled back into it a few weeks ago, bounced right off of it and have made higher highs since then. And we've been over allocated into stocks uh, since this follow through day. And as I said, I've just been riding, riding the wave higher, trying to uh, stay out of the way and not make mistakes because as Livermore said, it's not the thinking that makes the big money, it's the sitting. And <laughs> we're trying not to overthink this. We had a big breakout at 4,800 uh, two weeks ago, and that breakout is holding. And the good thing about it is we've now got the 50-day moving average working its way little by little up to that 4,800 level. It should get there uh, in about a week or so. And uh, you really like seeing the 50 day moving average above a key breakout level because during an uptrend, it should act as support for any pullback, the 50 day or 10 week moving average. And with it being above the pullback level, that 4,800 level, that's very bullish. And should it break, that would be a change in character in the market. And that would tell us to back off the gas a little bit and start to get more defensive. But for now, um, we are as fully allocated as we are comfortable being. We did put some hedges on, on that ugly day on Wednesday, ended up taking them off uh, this morning with the gap uh, up and um, actually took advantage right pre-market of that weak jobs report, which gave us a little haste to get out of the hedge. And then um, the S&P, like I said, I mean, we're sitting here at all time highs as we, as we, um, do this podcast so so taking it one step further because this was kind of fed related here for the last couple days but we've been also been talking to a few people um, because the fed what the fed is doing is he's actually killing inflate he's actually acting responsibly killing now you could argue that he is doing it too much or too late but he was trying to he's defending the dollar so if you keep the interest rates high or keep them where they are you're you're keeping money a little tight and it's strong for the dollar a strong dollar, and you always hear, oh, it's terrible for the stock market, it's terrible, a rising interest or, or a strong dollar is bad. Maybe short term, but if you have a stable currency, you attract money. You attract money for the longer term. Our stock market and bond market, but our stock market has been the strongest in the world for the last five, for, for a while now. So these asset allocators, these asset allocation pie charts, you shouldn't have any emerging markets right now and you shouldn't have any international. There's no reason you're not getting compensated for the risk. These international markets have been under pressure for the last few years because we've been the strongest. And now with Powell making the dollar strong, that's a, a strong dollar is big headwinds to emerging markets. That's going to make them tough even going forward. So they've been down losing money for a few years now. I think Don can confirm that. But it the, the outlook does not look good. So even if you are going to do a some type of asset allocation model, which we don't subscribe to, you still want to focus on an asset allocation 
in America right now. I wouldn't have emerging markets, especially maybe Europe, but I, I probably would just have small, mid, and, and large U.S. stocks and some bonds in the U.S. There's no reason to have international. All right. Sorry, Don. Yeah, we, we get our diversification through uh, different industry groups and sectors. We, you know, we've got tech, we've got Uber, which is consumer related. We've got Lilly, which is drug related. We've got NXT, which is solar. And then NVIDIA, AMD, obviously tech. Uh, uranium, which is a sector all unto itself as a, an alternative energy source, but that's how we get our diversification by uh, across uh, different sectors and industry groups. But your point about the dollar is extremely uh, well taken if you look at this chart. This uptrend in the dollar from July to October coincided with a pullback from the market. The market likes uh, a, a, a weak dollar will be a tailwind, but a strong dollar, if it's too strong, will be a headwind. So you want a solid you want a strong currency, but you don't want it to be too strong. So if you look here, this entire move up on the dollar coincided with a sharp pullback in the market. Then the market started to rally as the dollar pulled back here going into January. And then uh, look at the month of January, we got near new highs, but look at the dollar. It's nowhere near uh, the, it's not at the lows. The dollar actually went up in January while stocks were going up. So they can move in tandem. Uh, what you would have expected to see with the market making all-time highs is the dollar down here. And that, that's not what you're seeing. Uh, so the dollar has a month of January while the markets rose as well. And, and as and, far as – go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and, and folks, Don always says this. The, the, look, the, the money will find the least path of resistance. So what does that say? Think about that logically. If we have a strong dollar and monies are still flowing into our markets, it's either our markets are still bullish or overseas markets aren't. In other words, if, if overseas markets aren't a good place to put your money, then it, by default, you're going to put it here. That's another point. That's what, I, that's what I'm saying. Right now, in this time and space, America is the place to be. And I'll go you one better. Don was talking about diversification. You want just enough diversification so that one Enron, where they're lying on the books or cheating on the accounting, doesn't kill your portfolio. But you don't want too much diversification where you own everything because then you just got bad stuff going down with good. But when it hits the fan, when you get in a major sell-off, all the correlations grow together in that diversification. Just when you need diversification, it's not there. It all goes down, albeit at different rates. It all go so when it's ugly, you don't want diversification. You want cash or you want T-bills or maybe T-bills and gold. And if those two are positively correlated together, that's a fear trade. When gold and T-bills are positively correlated, that's not normally those are not correlated positively. Normally those are negatively correlated or inversely correlated. So in any event, I can't stress enough, right now, the, the, our market is telling us it wants to move higher. And, I, and even though these fundamental valuations are expensive, I'm okay with that because I know we have a sell discipline. So I just want to clarify that diversification because, yes, we have diversification at Revere when the market's acting well. When it's acting really bad, we don't have diversification. We only have a couple asset classes, usually cash. All right, Don. Yeah, money's flowing into the U.S. Do you know what the what the percentage of the Euro stocks fifty in technology is? Eight percent. They have 
zero innovation over in Europe. Money's flowing into the United States because of the, uh, the AI boom that's going on and the tech companies that are leading the way, holding the torch uh, as the market goes higher. Innovation is what gets rewarded in the markets. Uh, 8% innovation, it, that's, that's why it's holding the European stocks back. This comparison chart that I'm showing here is over the last three years. S&P 500 up 27%. Emerging markets down 31%. International stocks down 9.4%. Gold up 11%. S&P far and away leading the way. And if you want to look at technology, the NASDAQ 100 actually is just in line with the S&P 500 because of the big sell-off that it had during 2022. Uh, the S&P 500 US stocks, the place to be, you're doing diversification, not diversification. If, you're, uh, if you have any allocation into foreign stocks or emerging markets, especially as Dan stated with the strong dollar. And I, I say it's like going to the grocery store and buying rotten vegetables to say that you've got a balanced diet. It's dumb, it doesn't make any sense, and you're not doing yourself any favors by investing in underperforming asset classes, period. No matter what pie chart pinhead tries to sell you on the fact that you need diversification, you need it if the other asset classes are going up and you've got no better place to put your, um, your money. But you do right now, and it's in the United States, and more specifically in tech companies. Oh, and by the way, uh, I I did yeah I did say that I was going to bring up rebalancing because last week we beat up just to pie chart asset allocation. We didn't we just didn't subscribe to it. Take that a step further to make it sound like there's some kind of mathematical uh, reason for doing so. What they do is they do this rebalancing where they say on some arbitrary date, usually at the end of the year, semi annually. We're going to, and I'll just keep it real simple for the analogy. You've got five pieces of the pie, 20% each, okay? At the end of the year, some arbitrary date, one piece grows from 20 to 30, and one goes from 20 to 10. So it lost half its value while the other one made 100%. And then what they do is they go, okay, we got to sell this one from 30 back down to 20, and then take the one that's 10 and add it back up to 20. Folks. Sometimes yeah, sell the good one and buy the garbage, right? How yeah. much sense does that make? Yeah, so you're actually water. Sometimes you're watering the flowers. You're picking the flowers to water the weeds. It, 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 it's not that you may not want to do that. It's you don't just do it arbitrarily just because you need to go analyze. Why did that thing go down so much? Should I still hold it? Should it be sold? Is it a dog? Or more importantly, why wasn't it sold a lot earlier? And why did you take these big double digit losses? That's the real question. Now, the other question is, if this went from 20 to 30% and it's doing well, is that the sector to be in? Is it going to continue to do well? And do I want to add money there? That's why I just, I do not like that rebalancing argument. Anyway, sorry, Don, I had to get on my bully pulpit. Yeah, we're, we're discussing a, a new client coming on board and Estee Lauder was something that they held for him and just took a capital, uh, massive capital loss on it because they wrote it down from 260 to 130. This doesn't happen at Revere. We We know how to read a chart. We know when something's, working and when it's not working and that's just absolute garbage just for <laughs> okay. example and wait till I, I the mailbag next week is going to be epic because it's comparing us to uh, a pie chart and of course they rolled out 
the fact that you can't time the market and they mentioned the if you miss the 10 best days and the guy listens to us so he asked the guy what about missing the 10 worst days and the guy just looked at him with a blank stare so uh that's going to hit the mailbag next week on our show looking forward to that they even did it with if you miss both the 10 worst and best days Remember that quant guy got so tired of that argument about if you just missed the 10 best days. So he actually did the study where when you missed the worst 10 days and then both, and they both came out better than if you missed the, right. the 10 and best days. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the chart I sent the guy and that's the chart I'll show next week. And, okay. and that's actually the 10, the best and the worst happened during bear markets because yes. there's so much volatility. Uh, it's the, the, ele the elevator goes up in bear markets. You go down slowly and then you have violent rallies to recoup the gains. Uh, and you know, those best days happen with the bear market, but they look at them in isolation. They don't look at the five prior days that it's just recapturing the massive losses that were just taken in the bear market. So, well, not just, only that, not only that folks, think about this. So the 10, so all 10 of the worst day uh, best days in the market occurred in a bear market 19 of the 20 best days occurred in a bear market only one didn't so they're assuming that you didn't have a sell discipline so you wrote it all the way down and then they just got you out at the close of that bad day and then you missed that one big up day and then they got you back in they don't tell you that those best days like don said are actually most often wrapped around two huge down days and it was a snapback. It was it was a bear market rally, and then it rolled back over. They they forget to leave that out. But it's not mechanically possible to strip out the ten best days anyway. So it's a ridiculous argument. All right, Don, let's go to the markets. Let's go to the let's go to the uh, fellas. I pretty much hit the markets with the one okay. day down, two days up, and hitting all time highs here. So let's uh, let's start with Michael. Okay, so. Where where would you where would you like me to start, um, Dan? Because you know what I'm going to talk about specifically. I I would I would bring up those. Into... Yeah, I would start with I would bring yeah. up the charts and I would start I would just talk about what the Fed did and the yield curve. What 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 you think? Okay, so there, there's a couple definitions uh, I'll, I'll start with to make things a little more understandable. So this chart actually this is the uh, i'll go to this one second so that that's the corporate um, okay. credit spreads so the other chart of the the real rates we pull that up yeah okay so here you've got you've got a chart of uh what's called real rates and i'll explain that in just a second but you've got from five years up to 30 years of of uh maturities of of terms so if you look at that curve at the bottom, those numbers, that's how you plot a yield curve. It's based on the yield you're getting from these different terms. So from five years up to 30 years, you can see that the percentage, the rates are actually increasing. And that those are your real rates. So the way that real rates work is you may have heard of just interest rates in general, but in interest rates, you're talking about either the nominal rate or the real rate. And the real rate, is is the actual interest rate you're earning once you take out the factor of inflation so it's any interest rate you're earning above the rate of inflation which then when you add that real rate to the rate of inflation that's your nominal rate so if you see here on this on this chart as the rates go up your real rates are actually increasing so 
as I'm sure a lot of people have heard in the news, they talk about an inverted, inverted yield curve. But the reason for that, and the Fed says inflation expectations are well anchored, it's because as you go further along into 30 years, 10 years, uh, further into the future, inflation expectations are coming down. So you can have a lower nominal rate and have the curve invert, but you can still actually have a higher real rate than where we are now. So what actually matters for the economy and what's really restrictive is that real rate. That, that's really your cost of capital because companies, when you factor in inflation, you have a nominal rate, companies are able to increase their prices at the rate of inflation. Now that's kind of one of the factors that causes inflation. You've got companies raising prices to keep up with that. So if companies are able to increase their prices and the interest rate they're paying is based on on that level of inflation well they're they're kind of fine but what happens is if inflation starts coming down and they're not able to increase their prices but the actual real rate of interest that they're paying is going up and getting higher and higher that becomes super restrictive and it affects everyone it affects everyone's cost of capital so a way also that you can figure out what the real rate is there's something called you may have heard of the tips which is the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And those rates, the TIPS rate is, is that real rate. So whatever you see on TIPS, the interest rate you see on the, the TIPS rate, that's your real rate. So as I said, real rates are any, is your interest above the rate of inflation. And what's interesting about where we are in the market now, that's making a lot of participants uh, pretty bullish, that that's leading to a, to a strong market, is that at the moment, you've got a certain level of, of nominal rates, but as these inflation expectations keep coming down, your real rate actually continues going higher. So what's expected is the Fed can actually cut interest rates because they need to maintain that real rate. So they don't want the real rate to go too high. They cut interest rates and then it, and then it matches. So you can actually get interest rate cuts, the Fed funds rate to be cut without a recession and without a weakening economy. And usually the Fed comes in and cuts rates when, when things are really weakening. But in this case, it could just be a function of, of the real rate. Um, does that, does that make sense? Uh, any, any more? Well, well, I, the, the, the only, the only thing I'd add is, uh, the tips is the real rate according to the feds measured inflation rate. So if they get the inflation rate, right, then yes, the tips would be the real rate, but 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 in a nutshell, so so Michael gave a very technical definition of that. The bottom line, folks, is if he if the Fed keeps rates high, borrowing costs remain high, and it's gonna it's gonna restrict spending by these corporations because they 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 were really expecting a, a little bit of a reprieve and a little bit of rates dropping because they've got a lot of debt they're gonna need to roll over here pretty soon. So they're really looking, this is an important thing, this rates. The Fed kind of stood pat. And what Michael's kind of also saying is they might have had room to lower rates because inflation is actually dropping and, and coming down at a pretty good rate. They just want to make sure they stamp it out. So is he doing it too? I mean, the, really, the, the main question is, should he have dropped or should he have stamped pat? Should he have made sure he stomped it out or could he start easing? The markets were expecting an easing. They didn't get that. They didn't like it. Now they shrugged it off. So, Michael, what do you think is going to be uh, the outcome of this, where the rates are now? 
I, I have no clue. I, I have no idea where rates are going to go. I, I would suspect that as inflation comes down, which it has been, I mean, as Don speaks about in the videos and, and we've mentioned uh, the, the three month and the six month annualized PCE, core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation, is already below that 2% target. Six month annualized is at 1.9%, and the Fed's targeting 2%. So the Fed should. If, if uh, yeah, if inflation expectations continue to come down and actual realized inflation comes in lower, they should cut the, cut the nominal rate so that that real rate isn't too restricted. And let me why put that's it, important is, well, yeah. let me put it, well, let me put in English what Michael just said, because that probably went over 90% of the people's heads. Michael said the Fed actually had room to r lower rates and he should have done it because inflation is actually below their 2% target rate, which was the reason they said they're kind of, it's inflation's kind of sticky and it's not quite there yet. They want to make sure they get to the target rate. And so they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth because they're, they, they could have lowered rates. He just wants to be double sure. But according to their maybe own metrics. Jobs uh, report. Maybe he had the jobs report numbers ahead of time. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, he did. He did. No. And, and that's, that, that's all good and well. Now, Here's where I will say this is going to be important. This is where it matters to you and your money. Okay. Right now, T-bills are the place to be. That's what uh, my man crush, Jeff Goonlock, said. He said, look, you want to have T-bills right now. Folks, if T-bills are paying 5 or 5.25 or 5.5, and you're getting an investment-grade corporate bond for uh, the same amount, why take the risk? Because the Fed's got the printing press. You're not gonna, it's, it's got no risk of default whereas a corporation does. And so the credit spreads are very narrow. That's what Mike was going to bring up, right? They're very, very yeah. narrow. That's risk. That means the market is not pricing in, the bond market is not pricing in risk right now. Just like the stock market, the fundamentals are very high. It's a very rich market. So it really is threading the needle. Those earnings and our soft landing and our recovery has got to come in just right. Otherwise, we're going to, the market's probably due for a sell-off or correction. Well, in the bond market, okay, rates are high right now. The cost of capital is high. And right now, if you're looking for fixed income guarantees, the T-bills are kind of the place to be. They're inverted. Now, as rates do come down, short-term rates, T-bills, because that's what the Fed's trying to do. They, at some point later on in the year, they held Pat this time, six months from now, they're going to want to lower rates. As rates come down, your T-bills and your treasury money market fund that you're in love with right now that's paying 5% is going away. It'll be four and then three and a half and then three. And it'll happen fairly quick. It'll happen in fits and spurts, but the drops will be fairly big. You will want to actually lock in longer-term T-bills that are a little bit lower yield right now, but at least you lock them in. So when it does go down, you still have that lock. Or you'll, more importantly, you'll want to switch to investment-grade corporate. The time to know when to do that, really, is actually when those spreads widen. When those spreads widen a little bit and the Fed is about to lower rates, that's when you want to do the investment grade corporate. That's when you're going to want to make a fundamental switch from the treasury money markets. Now, the question is, will you be ready and will you know what to do? So that, that was my take, Michael. I want to give them a, 
uh, uh, you know, what the outcome of what the Fed is actually doing. It's, it's okay to talk about all of it, but, but we want to know what does that mean for us as an investor, what, what we need to do. So what are your thoughts on fixed income? How would you play the fixed income? I know you personally did a zero coupon a while ago. Yeah. And you took profits on some because rates did drop and you got a nice little gain. So right here at this moment in time, where would you be doing fixed income? What would you be buying? And then as the yield curve changes, meaning if rates do drop, short-term rates do drop, how would you do it? That's what I want to yeah, know. So as, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the issue with being in these short-term treasuries is that you've got something called reinvestment risk. So you're holding these T-bills. As soon as the Fed changes interest rates and decreases them, you're going to have to reinvest that and you're not going to be able to lock in that rate. So what investors are doing, as you can see here on these credit spreads, what that means is the credit spread is the amount of additional compensation you're, you're receiving for taking on more risk because corporate bonds, a bond that's issued by a company is obviously going to be more risky than a bond that's issued, issued by the treasury or that's, that's by the federal government. That, that, there's the risk-free security, which is the government guaranteed bond, and then you've got corporate bonds investment grade are as safe as you can get within those corporate bonds. But as you can see here right now, spreads are at 1% and it, that, that's pretty much the bottom of that range, which, which means that investors are piling into these corporate bonds to lock in these higher rates now, but now that they're fully valued, you're not really getting any compensation for that risk. So it could still be a good idea. You could lock in a good rate. And even if, uh, if spreads stay super tight or even increase, if the Fed funds rate comes down from, let's say, five and a half percent now, five and a quarter percent down to three percent, 200 basis points, which means two percent, you could have corporate spreads actually increase a little bit and you could still get get a good gain on those corporate bonds just from the fact that that the Fed funds rate came down so much. So it is an area I personally, I would be looking more at, um, at longer term treasuries because you will get the same, you will get the same effect. It's, it's something called duration, which is your sensitivity to the change in interest rates. So I, I believe that the, the, the real rate on the long end of the curve, as we saw in that chart, real rates are around 2%, which is historically very high. The Fed is targeting a real rate of about um, but, uh, about percent. So if you can get a big decrease in that in that real rate and have the long end of the yield curve come down, you can get a great capital gain um, and lock in a good rate on the long end of the curve. So I would maybe if I had a full fixed income portfolio, I would have a portion in corporate corporate bonds. But you don't have to pick one or the other. You can kind of diversify right. within fixed income, and I would have. I would definitely have a portion of uh, of longer term treasuries to get that that duration. All right, th thanks, Mike. That's what I want. So, folks, Big Brain Mike talks in all these deep, deep analyzation of the Fed's. Here's the bottom line: when rates are about to go up, you want to go way shorter in the yield curve. You want to go really short because long term bonds will get losses; they'll start getting hit on their price. You want to. Go longer in duration or mature. They're not quite the same. They're very similar. Longer in maturity. You want to go further and have longer maturity bonds 
right before the Fed is about to drop rates. Not only will you lock in a higher rate, you will also lock in capital gains. So even if that rate is 6% on the bond or the yield is 6, if they drop rates by 200 basis points, you may get another 8% gain, capital gain on the bond. So you can make double-digit returns in bonds if they're timed right. Folks, you want to time bonds just like just like timing is important with stocks, they're just a much longer cycle. It's in months and years, not in weeks and months. It's just different. All right, Mike, thanks a lot. All right, Don, what's, what do the other guys have? Let's go to Connor. has got some interesting charts to show us. Yeah, uh, today, just quick, quick segment. Wanted to talk about three recent earnings gaps. Um, earnings season's been off to a pretty strong start. And that's always a positive thing. And like we've said before, it's not always what exactly the earnings are. It's how the market takes it because you can have bad earnings and, and people buy the stock and vice versa. So yeah, this first one's United Rentals. Uh, not a name that a lot of people talk about, but this is the type of action you like to see after stock gaps up on earnings. Um, it gapped up 13% on nearly 300% above average volume over that uh, 600 Livermore level. And now it's forming a pretty bullish looking flag here. Um, so right in the AEMA. So that's one to watch, seeing if it can break out. Um, next one is DEC. This, this happened today. And this is the second earnings gap it's had um, in, you know, in the last couple months. It performed again, and um, this has had a huge move. Uh, today it's up 13, around 16% now on 300% uh, above average volume. And yeah, where Don's pointing, just the first gap was quite big. It trended one pullback to the 50 day and bounced. And now it's in new highs once again. So um, that's a leader for you right there. And, and that's exactly what you wanna see when you get in a leader being able to hold through earnings. And, and that's, that's the important thing. Um, and then last one, Meta. This one's just quite amazing to look at, really. Um, the chart was $85, $90 not too long ago, and here it is at uh, almost $500 a share. And this is up, um, you know, around 20% on five, 600% above average volume. Uh, so, yeah, some really good moves. Um, we're seeing this earnings, and, and this, this is always a good gauge of, if the market's strong or not, um, if investors are buying good earnings reports and and pushing the stock up, that means, you know, money's flown into equities and strong leading stocks. So that's good for the bullish narrative. It, that, that's a great point. It, in questionable markets, stocks don't gap up and hold these gaps like that. They're immediately sold. And that's one of our rules when we're in a sideways trending or a downtrending market is that anything that gaps up, you can, there aren't a lot of guarantees in the market, but it's normally shocking if something holds its gap uh, in a sideways trending or in a downtrending market. Thanks, Connor. Ted, you've got, uh, you've got a little uh, mini class here today to show. You wanna go ahead and start it? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Don. So today I just wanted to kind of talk about an advanced form of technical analysis and it's, and it's what I call layering different edges together to give you more uh, conviction because when, when various edges come together, um, actually, let me step back for a sec. 
basically in technical analysis, there's a bunch of different indicators and ways people use to read charts. Um, there's many different types of traders that look at their specific indicators and they, they trust what they use and pretty much prices will be like defended at their levels, their key levels in, in their specific systems that they use. And so here on the chart on the screen is a very basic form of technical analysis, just looking at price structure and volume. And oftentimes when a stock breaks out, it normally will see some sort of retest. And that's kind of what I highlighted on the screen here. I put three circles, it came up off the November follow through day, rallied into December, and we stalled there for a bit on that second circle, that middle circle. Consolidated there for a few days before breaking out on huge volume. And then once we exceeded that 200 level, that's when we started pulling back a little bit. And that's where we came back and retested it on that very right circle. Um, so this is the first one I want to showcase. Don, if you can pull up the second chart. Another very common indicator people use, it's like, like us at Revere, are moving averages. And here on the top left of the screen, I have a 50-day moving average plotted. And that pretty much met where that price structure support level was as well. Um, and then on the bottom right is a weekly chart with a 200-week moving average, which is an average for a longer-term time frame for a general longer term macro trend of the stock. And that was pretty much exactly where the 50 day moving average was, as well as that breakout retest. The third edge that people use in the markets technicians use are anchored view ops. Essentially what view ops are is their volume weighted average price. So it's pretty much taking account average price with weighted by the volume. And this weekly chart I have on the screen I've plotted a all-time high anchored view up and then a year to date, no, an October low anchored view up. And those, once again, come right against that 50-day moving average we talked about before, the 200-week moving average, as well as the breakout retest. And then the fourth edge that technicians use that I wanted to showcase, Don will pull up on the screen, are Fibonacci retracements. And how I drew this was uh, from October low here to the highs of this recent rally. We came back and retested that 38.2% retracement level, which is one of the more significant levels. That and the 50% are, are known as some of the more significant levels. And finally, Don, if you pull up the chart combining all the edges, I just want to give my last portion of commentary. Um, Pretty much like on our morning calls, we even discussed this. We talked about how all these layers um, were coming together. So it is likely that that area will hold and we'll see some, some sort of rally, which is exactly what happened at that area. We rallied up. So far, we're pulling back again, retesting the 50-day. But this is continuing to build its rights have a base. So essentially, technical analysis, people use, like for us, we primarily use uh, moving averages and price and volume but we are aware of other traders in the world that use these types of indicators and we know that they will be there defending their edges and if you combine them together it can just give you more confidence conviction and greater probability that price will be defended
Yeah, there are no absolutes in the market. There are possibilities and probabilities, and it's kind of like trying to put the some pieces of the puzzle together. But if at the end, what's actually happening doesn't match what should happen, then that's a divergence from the expected. That changes our expectations, and we react accordingly. We We don't hold fast to opinions here that aren't supported by the market. Great stuff, Ted. Thanks. And uh, that'll wrap it up from the tech side. Dan, you can take us home. All right. And I just wanted to add one thing on Ted's thing. When when you get a couple different, and that's what Ted's saying, when you get a couple different indicators that are all confirming the same level, it really increases your probabilities. It help, you you want to see two or three confirming indicators confirming the same spot you're looking at. That really helps. Folks, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Just send them to revereasset.com. Up in the right-hand corner, there's a subscribe button. They can put in their email and their name, and we, we're not going to hassle them. It's up to them to reach out to us. In fact, there's a contact us button right next to that. But they can send if they want a, a stock or a topic they want talked about on the show, or they just want a complimentary portfolio review. You can And you can email any of us, dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, Ted, Michael, or Connor at revereasset.com. And you can always, always, always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Folks, we'll talk to you next week on your money. Because it's not about how much you made in the markets. It's about how much you can keep. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.